public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard has a Star Talk report describing the summer solstice. Along the Poets Row, Christine San Jose recites on a funny theme of fishing. Sweetwater fishing guide Evan Padua has a hooked on fishing fun report to the Upper Delaware River. In her segment Now You Know, Stephanie Phillips visits the Mamakaning Environmental Center to meet with naturalist Marty Borco. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country, but first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Former Vice President Mike Pence's life was in danger when Trump-supporting rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol. According to testimony and evidence aired by the congressional January 6th panel this week, Pence had been under significant pressure by then-President Trump to interfere with the traditional counting of electoral votes leading to the certification of Joseph Biden's election. But on the stump in Nashville, former President Trump continued to press his case, not supported by the facts, that Pence could have reversed the election's outcome. Mike Pence had a chance to be great. He had a chance to be, frankly, historic. But just like Bill Barr and the rest of these weak people, Mike, and I say it sadly because I like him, but Mike did not have the courage to act. Former Attorney General to Trump, Bill Barr, has told the panel that Trump had been told repeatedly there was no foundation to his claims of a so-called rigged election. In New Mexico, reluctant county commissioners have bowed to legal pressure and voted by a majority to certify last week's primaries. From member station KUNM, Alice Fordham reports the officials had cited unfounded concerns about election security. The Otero County commissioners voted two to one to certify after the New Mexico Supreme Court ordered them to do so and the attorney general threatened legal action if they did not. They had declined to certify the results, citing objections to the electoral system, including the fact that they were not allowed to examine Dominion voting machines themselves. That company has been the subject of false conspiracy theories about the 2020 election. The commissioner who objected was prominent Trump supporter Coy Griffin, who was not personally present because he was in Washington, D.C., for sentencing after being found guilty of entering restricted U.S. Capitol grounds on January 6 last year. He was sentenced to time served, a fine and community service. For NPR News, I'm Alice Fordham. Wall Street closed another week in worrying territory. NPR's Scott Horsley has this latest snapshot. The tech-heavy Nasdaq rose on Friday while the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell. For the week, though, all the major stock indexes were in the red. Both the Dow and the Nasdaq lost about 4.8%, while the S&P 500 index tumbled 5.8%. On Wednesday, the Federal Reserve raised its benchmark interest rate by three-quarters of a point as it tries to crack down on stubbornly high inflation. Investors initially welcomed the Fed's move, but later resumed their sell-off of stocks, out of concern that higher borrowing costs will slow the economy and perhaps trigger a recession. 
Housing construction is already slowing. Factory output also declined slightly last month, though new car production was up. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections. With showrooms at Lake Wallenpapik, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Today's show is busting with June fun. Volunteer reporters Keith Hubbard, Christine San Jose, Evan Padua, and Stephanie Phillips offer their talented seasonal radio productions. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. country. I'm Keith Hubbard and this is Star Talk. Tuesday will be the summer solstice, the day when the sun reaches its most northern point for the year. Even though the summer solstice actually refers to the moment when the sun reaches its peak in the sky for the year, we refer to the day in which this occurs as the summer solstice. Derived from two Latin words, sol meaning sun and sister meaning to stand still, The term solstice describes what the sun appears to do. If one were to observe the maximum height of the sun each day during the weeks leading up to the summer solstice, one would notice that the sun climbs higher and higher in the sky until it comes to a stop on the summer solstice. The summer solstice is the longest day of the year, and on Tuesday we will see 15 hours and 14 minutes of sunlight. Those living north of the Arctic Circle will see 24 hours of sunlight today, and anyone south of the Antarctic Circle will not see the sun at all. For those living on the Tropic of Cancer, 23.5 degrees north of the equator, the sun will be directly overhead at noon. Cultures from around the world have celebrated the solstice for millennia. The solstice marked the start of the new year in the ancient Egyptian calendar. It was a time of social equality in ancient Greece, and the Sioux tribe held rituals honoring the sun on the solstice. Head out on Tuesday and enjoy the longest day of the year. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, This has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. Along the Poets Row today, we're fishy and funny. Starting with fishy. This is a poem written by John Chalkhill, and he was writing just a bit later than Shakespeare, and is called The Angler. 
Oh, the gallant fisher's life, it is the best of any. Tis full of pleasure, void of strife, and tis beloved by many. Other joys are but toys, only this lawful is. For our skill breeds no ill, but content and pleasure. When we please to walk abroad for our recreation, in the fields is our abode full of delectation, where in a brook with a hook or a lake fish we take. There we sit for a bit till we fish entangle. We have gentles in a horn, we have paste and wormies too. We can watch both night and morn, suffer rain and storms too. None do here use to swear, O's do fray fish away. We sit still, watch our quill, fishers must not wrangle. If the sun's excessive heat makes our bodies swelter, to an osier hedge we get for a friendly shelter, where in a dyke, perch or pike, roach or dace, we do chase, bleak or gudgeon without grudgeon, we are still contented. Or we sometimes pass an hour under a green willow that defends us from a shower, making earth our pillow where we may think and pray before death stops our breath. Other joys are but toys and to be lamented. And sticking with the water, here's a tale, hmm, kind of adventure really, from Penelope Garty, who lives in Calicoon. She calls it the Ballad of Henry Hudson. She should know she's Canadian. Old Henry went up river, all on a very fine day, looking for Cathay. Ordered to go around Russia, old Henry, he knew best, way to the east is west. Old Henry went up river, all on a very fine day, looking for Cathay. Manhattan was a wilderness, its story yet untold. Henry wanted gold. Old Henry went up river, all on a very fine day, looking for Cathay. Old Henry got to Albany, as many a man since then, came right back again. Old Henry wasn't really old, but he got braver and bolder. Didn't get much older. Old Henry changed his course to north. He lost the roll of the dice, got stuck in the ice. Old Henry never made it, and few know how he died. How hard he tried. Let's all drink to old Henry who sailed right past Wall Street, done in by cold feet. And this one, still water, you'll see, but I shan't tell you the title till the end. Um, kindly shared uh, with us by Highlights for Children from Lauren, who lives in Ohio. Brrrr, goes our 747. It rumbles and shakes and makes such a noise that it's hard to concentrate and play with our toys. Rabble, scrabble, scrabble, the dishes inside. I feel bad for their dishes. They're on such a ride. It's going to crash into the sea. Oh, no, it's high tide. I wonder if they died. <laughs> yes, you got it, didn't you? That was our dishwasher. Dishes, you might say, as fishes. This has been Christine San Jose along the Poets Row for Farm and Country.
For Radio Catskill and Farm and Country, this is Evan Padua bringing you Hooked on Fishing. Fishing is an activity that, when done right, can provide cheap thrills and a lifetime of fun and never-ending dreams of catching the big one. The anticipation of catching a big fish is what drives a lot of fishermen and women. It is an accomplishment and fun. The Upper Delaware River provides opportunities for fishermen and women of all kinds. Fly fishing for trout is a challenging and fun way to fish and often one of the most rewarding. Our river's ecosystem is very healthy and it shows this by its amount of self-sustaining fish species and huge amount of bug life. Aquatic bugs are a sign of high quality water and the Delaware has a ton of bugs. You will see clouds of these bugs near and around the river from mid-April through September, and the fish eat them too. When the bugs hatch out of the rocks and banks from the river, fish will eat them as they emerge or as they sit on the surface and dry their wings. Then at night, many bugs die and fall back into the river. Fish eat them them also. Check out the Catskill Fly Fishing Museum for more information on fly fishing. For Radio Catskill, Farm and Country, and Hooked on Fishing, this has been Evan Padua, casting off. Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. I'm at the Mamakating Environmental Center today, and it turns out that's a good place to meet up with Marty Borco, who often goes birdwatching there in the morning. Marty is an outstanding naturalist who's going to help us see better what's in our woodlands. I'm Marty Borco, grew up in Sullivan County. Went to Fullsburg Central School, graduated in 1957 from high school there in Fullsburg. And after that, went to State University of New York at Albany. And then my professors there said I should go do graduate work at Cornell. So I went to Cornell and earned a master's degree in environmental conservation, wildlife management, and then taught in Monticello High School for two years before accepting a position at Orange County Community College working my way up to a professor and spending 35 years full-time there. And then after I retired, still spent another decade working part-time in the summer, teaching a summer session. Marty, a lot of us live in forested areas that once were farms. Can you tell me about our forests and how they've changed over time as the farms disappeared? Yes, that's called basically secondary succession, natural succession where you have a buildup of soil that's there already and uh, you're ready to accept a natural seed source that the birds would carry in or the wind would blow in and then vegetation would take off. You would first start off with a herbaceous vegetation 
and then the herbaceous vegetation would yield to shrub vegetation, and the shrubs would then eventually be overshadowed by the trees. In actuality, a, a good forest actually does have a three-layered effect, a top layer of trees, a middle layer of shrubs, and a bottom layer of some herbs of various species, so that we now have actually a good mix in Sullivan County of secondary forests that have come back into the county. So what does that mean in terms of what kinds of trees and bushes do we see, and underbrush as well, in our local woods? Well, first let me tell you about what we don't see in the woods, if I may. And that is that around 1900, there was what is called the American chestnut blight. And we used to have chestnut trees. And unfortunately, in the years that I was teaching in the 70s and 80s, 90s, Occasionally, we would come across a stump of an old chestnut, but that was the first tree that was a major component that we lost. Soon after that, we lost the American elm. All the big campuses across the United States had big elms on the campuses, as well as elms in the woods, and we lost the elms to, again, the same kind of disease, an ascocete fungus that would be transmitted in the case of the elms by bark beetles. And right now, in the last five years, The state of New York is losing all of its ash trees due to emerald ash borer, which is a beetle that is flying from ash tree to ash tree and then affecting the cambium layer, which is the layer that provides the nutrients from the roots up into the leaves. And when that layer is eaten away by the beetles, the ash die. So unfortunately, really, we have lost those three species wholly at this point in time, the chestnut, the elms, as well as the ash, And we're in the process also of losing one of our two major evergreens. Our two major evergreens, in my mind, would be the white pine and the hemlock. The white pine usually likes drier environments, south-facing. The hemlock is one that likes gorges and, and shady areas and provides a tremendous amount of shade. And right now we have what is known as the hemlock woolly adelgid, which is a type of homopterin, a bug that sucks the juice out of the leaves And as a result of that, the leaves are dying and the tree dies and we're losing our hemlocks. When we lose our hemlocks, we lose the environments for birds like black and warbler, black-throated green warbler, different thrushes would be lost as well that would like that environment. But the major component probably for most of you listening is probably it destroys the cold water streams. You destroy the cold water streams by letting more sunlight in, the water warms up, and it's no longer trout habitat. So where you have the best trout habitat, you usually have a very heavy shading of hemlock trees. And we're really in dire threats of losing all that right now. What surprises me is that given how cold it is here in the winter, that they don't die. Well, temperature retards certainly growth sometimes, depending on variability. I would say right now, uh, climate change is certainly a major threat to everything. We just don't know what the eventual outcome is going to be. I think right now in the southwest, they have temperatures predicted of over 100 degrees. The water reservoirs out there are down almost to zero. And here we've had a very wet spring. So the variables that are coming, I mean, now we're down at the Bashak Hill, and I've never seen rivulets or erosion as heavy as it is coming off the gunks down into the Bashak Hill, as I've seen today, because I walked a lot of the South Road while I was birding. Well, you've painted a pretty gloomy picture. So what's left? What do we have in our woods now? Well, it's not very encouraging in actuality. We have the dominant tree, I would suggest, is the red maple. 
The red maple is a very adaptable species. It's one that can survive in dry areas, wet areas. It's transported, has a fruit that's called the Samara that is carried by the wind. It's also probably carried by birds. That would be the dominant tree in the area. We also have the sugar maples, which are a bigger tree, a heavier tree, in the sense that it's a, a more of a quality wood than the red maple. Right now in the wood market, a sugar maple is a prized product. And since they don't have enough sugar maple necessarily, a lot of the wood harvesters are harvesting the red maple. Marty, we have other layers that you mentioned. So what do you see in the understory? The understory that we would want really would be our native shrubs, which consist of two groups, the viburnums and the dogwoods. And dogwood, like the flowering dogwood, has been hit hard also by fungal diseases. But there's still a certain amount of flowering dogwood out there. And there are lots of different species of viburnum. Different dogwoods still occupy a lot of the wetter areas and a lot of general understory in good solid woodland. Marty, do the natural dogwoods have different flowers from the ones that you buy in the nursery? The flower structure, floral structure, is, is the same pretty much for all the dogwoods. It's interesting, you know, I think about it, not the flower structure, but dogwoods and viburnums are both known for having what we call an opposite leaf arrangement. The only one that doesn't have an opposite leaf arrangement is called the alternate leaf dogwood, and that has a very distinctive style of a pagoda-like format so that you can easily recognize that tree once you see that pagoda form. But all the others are pretty well, pretty standard. Viburnum dentatum and viburnum acerium, the maple-leaved and the dentatum. It's interesting in that the maple leaf viburnum is more common in the woodland and the dentatum is more common in more open areas for the shrubs. Can you describe the leaf of the viburnum so that somebody might be able to recognize them walking through the woods? Yes, the maple leaf viburnum is a shrub and its leaf looks just like any other maple, whether it's a red maple or a sugar maple. It has that same general form, easily distinguished as a maple-like leaf. And then dentatum is a nice orbicular sort of egg-shaped leaf that has very sharp teeth all along the margin, very visible large teeth all along its edge, which gives it the name dentatum, meaning teeth. I think of the viburnums as being a rather darker shade of green than many of the other trees. Is that true of the wild ones too? I think a lot of the viburnum shrubs are often green, often have a maroon cast as well. So that's a fairly common shade in many places. And the dogwoods that we're going to see in the woods, do they all have white flowers? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, as I think about it, close my eyes, all I can see is white. Even the cherry tree, the sweet cherry blossoms are white with a little tinge of pink. And the pear blossoms are white. Everything is pretty, pretty white. So we've come to a sort of medium level in the understory. What do you have down on the ground? Well, unfortunately, the ground is, is a very sad case. We can talk about the ferns, uh, but a lot of the wild flowers, such as trilliums, for instance, are no longer where they used to be, and that is because of the white-tailed deer. Our white-tailed deer population is a major destructive mechanism of our woodlands throughout the Northeast. The deer love the herbaceous vegetation or wildflowers, and they have been devouring them to such an extent that natural reproduction and populations that used to be fairly substantial 
have been devastated, no longer there. And that's sad. You find an isolated plant here and there now more often than the big populations that used to be there in the past. We have two baneberries as understory plants, red baneberry and doll's-eyed baneberry, and they're few and far between. I had a good population out at Wildwood of the red-berried baneberry, and then the deer came in and just devastated it this last year. So it's always a threat from the whitetail. And not only the understory flowers, but the trees. I mean, you, you can't get a, a sugar maple to start to grow before the deer come along and browse the top of the sugar maple, so it's never getting up there to be a, a replacing tree for the sugar maples that are old and dying. We have to work on it every day. Don't give up, but at the same time, it's, it's not an optimistic vision that I could give you. Don't you see this as a kind of a cyclical thing that eventually the deer will eat themselves out of food? We no longer have severe winters. We used to have severe winters with deep snow, and certainly in Sullivan County, deer hunting is a big issue. And there used to be deer forums held in the 70s and 80s up in Liberty, with Cal Crary used to be the big person with the, representing the sportsmen of Sullivan County. I don't know how many meetings I went to when Cal Crary would say, oh, we shouldn't have a doe season, we shouldn't have this, we just need to leave the deer alone. And the DEC would come in and he would say that we check the deer, the deer are dying. Because what deer do in the winter is they yard up. The winter when it's severe, they can't live out in the open exposed area, so they find a good swamp area and they congregate there in, in fairly large numbers. And the state would do surveys all the time. They'd get their men out in the field to see what's happening with the deer. And then what they do every year, the DEC, is they can check the bones of a deer. You get a major bone, like would be our femur or humerus, take, take that bone and crack it open and look inside the shaft of the bone and the medullary cavity and check to see how much fat is in there. Because if you are healthy, you and I right now, if they, somebody checks our bones, you will see we have fat in our bones. It, it keeps us healthy. And when a deer is not getting enough to eat, the fat dissipates. It's gone, and you just find a little bit of red in there, and the medullary cavity is pretty well empty. And the, the state would do these surveys, and they would come back, and they would tell where we should have more hunting to reduce the deer population. And then Cal Prairie would say, in Sullivan County, we don't have to do that. We can let the deer grow. And it's, it's not a new issue. I mean, this has been happening for the last 50, 60 years that the deer have been overbrowsing and destroying forests. When they congregate like that, aren't they more subject to infectious diseases? Undoubtedly, they would be, but they're more subjected to starvation because they're not getting much to eat and the deer yard is eaten out in whole. It's just a cleanse. And then if you have deep snow, the deer can't move, and they just die. And quite often in the past, the state would find 20 deer just dead in the yard all clustered together because they just couldn't get enough to eat. Well, that's discouraging. So now you know what to look for when you're walking through the woods. Our expert naturalist today has been Marty Borco, who just loves trees and the birds that roost in them. If you have ideas for future Now You Know segments, email me at stephanie at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country.
On today's show, Farming Country features the music of Steve Jacoby. Steve is one of the singer-songwriter musicians of the Upper Delaware Collective. They will be performing at the Drive-In Music Concert, featuring four bands on a mobile, rotating stage, Saturday, June 18th, from 6 to 9 p.m., outdoors at the Union in Narrowsburg, New York. Bring a $5 donation and your picnic dinner. Sit outside by the fire pit and enjoy the music of Poison Love, Brewster Smith, Cliff Westfall, and the Tomb Keepers. Saturday, June 18th, 6 to 9 p.m., outdoors at the Union in Narrowsburg, New York. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard, Christine San Jose, Evan Padua, and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guest, naturalist Marty Borco from the Mamacating Environmental Center. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country on Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org On the Waggle of the Monkeys, I play folk music from all five countries in the British Isles. And starting next time, we'll be hearing music from the capital of each, starting with songs and music.